Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Luke 16, 19-31 Good morning, church. If we haven't met yet, my name is Mark. I get to be one of the ministers here, and we're glad you're with us uh, worshiping today, all of us. I, I want to point out, oh, there's a young lady sleeping in the front row here, and I wanted to note, for the record, this was happening before I came out, so... Uh, I will not take responsibility for that one. Hey, uh, we need you to open your Bibles to Luke 16, verse 19, if you want to get those ready. And have you ever met certain people in your life where the moment you meet them, you're like, I'm going to like this person. And then if you're broken like me, you sometimes meet people and you're like, oh, nope, nope, (laughs) I'm not going to like them for some, I'm not sure why, but I don't think I'm going to like them. And I've been wrong on both occasions, but for the most part, you have an intuition about people. From the moment I met Carolyn Shiragi, who was introduced to you this morning, I've had this heart's desire I want to give her what she says she needs to do her ministry. How about you? What she is doing, she is a world changer. She'll tell you she's not. Uh, She's very humble. She's very proper. She's a wonderful human being. She is killing it. Her and her team are doing things that most people would never imagine Christians would do. And I want to encourage you. I know this is outside of some of the norm. Normally when the service ends, there's like a fire evacuation out both sides to get to your cars and beat everybody to wherever you're going, and that's cool. However, today I'm going to ask you to do something that we don't ask you enough to do, and that is to go out in the foyer and go to their table. If you're not familiar with Life Choices, please become familiar, because this is a ministry that is making a massive difference in people's lives. And we just want you to to go find out, ask questions. I think you'll become more invested the more you know about what they're trying to do, because my heart says, if Carolyn says she needs it, I want to be able to provide that for her. So take an opportunity, if you will, today. I think it would be uh, worth your time. I think God will move in your heart as well. Well, if you are visiting with us today, we are in a series through the Gospel of Luke. We've not been taking every single text. We're covering the themes of Luke over the 20 weeks starting back in December. 
It'll take us all the way in and past Easter. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because we're in a chapter uh, in Luke chapter 16 where there is a common theme found in this chapter. Jesus tells two parables. The parables are unique to themselves, but there's also a consistent theme. In the first parable, Jesus tells of a manager who's either not good at his job or they don't need him anymore and he's going to be released and he's shrewd. He makes decisions with the people he's working with to protect his future. And Jesus told that strange parable. And then we get to the parable we just had read over us today. And it's a story that Jesus tells about what happens to two men who die. And again, it's a similar theme. If I can encapsulate what I think the theme is, it's found in Jesus' words, where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. He's teaching us a principle. Now, this is one of those messages I heard overwhelmingly last week to great pleasure what a fantastic job Michael did. And I was watching it uh, from Indiana online during our 8 o'clock service, and I felt the same way. But Michael didn't pull any punches, did he? And I was so tired of hearing what a great job he did that I'm going to abuse all of you today with being very direct. No, actually, this is a coaching sermon. This is not one of those pastoral lift you up and, and pat you on the back, although I love to do that, and you deserve that. But today's text doesn't allow us to be anything but direct. So it's not anger. It's just that there's, there's no way to make this lighter than it is. It's to deal with it. And so I want you to listen to the parable today, and I want to begin by coaching you in this way. We all struggle with entitled hearts. Our hearts feel that it's entitled to have what we want, that our desires are different than our needs, but we deserve both of them. It's in the broken human nature that we become angry when anybody stands in the way of us getting what we think we want. It's found in Scripture. We live in a culture today, and I won't spend too much time on this, but I think you would agree with me. In fact, I think it's probably understood in the room, so I'll just say it and move on. We live in a culture that says, follow your heart. As a pastor, I can't allow that to be said without standing against it because our hearts are misshapen. Our hearts are selfish. Our hearts are focused on ourselves and not others. In fact, in uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. To follow the natural desires of mankind is to want the fruit that God said we can't have. And yet we get mad at God for saying we can't eat that fruit. And God is not telling us that, that he just doesn't want us to eat the fruit. He said you weren't created to eat it. In fact, here's the beautiful part of God's plan. God says you're better for not having it than you are for experiencing it. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. See, the echoes of the Garden of Eden is God says no, and we say I can if I want to. And the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, not what I want, but what you want, Father. One changed the history of the world and the other broke the world. It's tough to sell it in Western culture that you and I could desire something and not deserve it or desire something that's not good for us. Yet we as believers believe that Scripture speaks clearly, correct? We believe that the authority of our life is to be found in the words of God. So we have to stand corrected. And it all comes down to the one thing that Satan doesn't tell us in the temptations. Is he said, you're going to be satisfied. You're going to be fulfilled. You're going to find the thing you're looking for. Yet it, what he doesn't tell you is this, that every time you raise your glory above God's, you destroy yourself. There's no win. And see, God, God calls for us to put his glory above anything else in life. Of course he would. It's good for him if we do that. No, it's actually understand this. 
Lifting God's glory up is not just good for God, it is good for us. And the emptiness of our lives is often because we're trying to be glorified in a world that doesn't care about us and overpromises and underdelivers. In Isaiah 43, verse 7, the Old Testament prophet said, Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. God is revealing to us that his glory is the answer to our need. Because in God's glory, there is no selfishness from God toward us. It's actually the giving of himself. God's glory is for our good. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were entitled. They believed that because they had power, they had riches, they had authority, that they were blessed by God. This is what they were teaching. And they thought if you didn't have authority and you didn't have power and you didn't have money, that you were being cursed by God. So Jesus tells a parable. I'm going to give you three things from this parable this morning, and I want you to just process it. This is straight coaching. This is what we need to be doing. There's no question about whether it'll work. If we execute what we're asked to execute and understand what he's saying to us, it will change the trajectory of our lives. That's not an overstatement. Let's begin. Our identities are based on what we choose to live through. Our identities are defined by the choices we make. You know this. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. It's a parable of contrast. Now, I have a bit of an ordinary nature, and so every now and then I like to, to find out that two people disagree on something and bring it up and walk away. I don't know if you all do that, but having four brothers, this is what we did. And if you want to get some theologians going, ask them if this is a real story or just a parable, and then have fun. I don't know that it matters a whole lot. I mean, there's some significant things to consider that. It's not wasted time. But at the end of the day, Jesus' point is Jesus' point, whether he's identifying a real situation or a presented situation, because I believe Jesus would not use falsehood to teach truth. So some of the insights into the afterlife, I think, can be deducted from this. But don't go too far. Anyway, let's look at the contrast between the two men in Jesus' story. One was rich, one was poor. One wore the best clothing, one was covered with sores. One feasted every day, the other one wished somebody would help him find food. One man had a funeral, the other did not. But there's one striking contrast that catches my attention more than those. One man had a name, the other did not. And the name of the one man is Lazarus, which means God is my help. But what's fascinating to me is if you think through the scenario, the rich man would have been known. Everybody would have known the rich man. He would have been successful on Forbes' list of most influential people. He would have had a TikTok account that would have had a little blue check mark next to it. Everybody would have known him because he's successful. Nobody would have known the poor man begging, the poor man covered in sores, dog licking his wounds. Yet, on the other side of death... God knows the name of one man, and the other is unknown. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't read too much into it. It's not like God became stupid upon death. 
If God knows the hair on every one of our heads and every one of our freckles, he knows our unique fingerprints. Jesus is making a bigger point, isn't he? Our identities are defined by the choices we make in life. And if Lazarus is known and his name is God is my help, we see some insight here. In every other parable Jesus teaches, no one's named. There's a sower, there's a king, there's a landowner, there's a woman, there's a widow, there's a a Samaritan, a son, a shepherd. No names. Jesus is teaching us something. The man who's God... The man who lived his life with God as his help is known. The one who lived as his own help is unidentified. His identity is now insignificant. Doesn't this remind you of the words or echo the words of Jesus who would teach that those who say, but look at all the things I did for you, Jesus would say what? I don't know you. I never knew you. What you were doing was about you. You weren't living as if God was your help. You were living like you were helping God. And so here is the fulcrum moment in Jesus' story. They both die. And that is a biblical truth that we don't want to talk about. I'm going to die, and you're going to die. And then what? Then what? Michael asked us last week, are we lost? Are you aware of your lostness without Jesus, without hope? Today we ask the question, What are you living for? And how are you living that life? You see, one man in this story lived, and his only hope was in God's provision. The other man lived under the hope of his own. Quite a contrast. And then there's some insight from Jesus, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Jesus is showing us something. I believe this is one of the realities of the afterlife that he's revealing to us, that when you and I die, it is decided. There is no retest. There is no do-over. Upon death, we will have chosen our eternity. You see, Lazarus' identity was in the hands of God and could not be taken from him. The rich man's identity was in his own hands, and it was left behind. Oh, I, I promise you, church, I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to do this every week, but I was telling Teresa on our staff this week, we were talking about it, I said, it's just odd after the last seven months of my life to have this text this day. Last weekend, I was in South Bend helping clear my parents' house out. If you don't know, the last seven months have been quite interesting in our family. My, we moved my parents from their house of 50-plus years to uh, an independent living place, and with that had to be some big decisions about what they could take with them, what would fit, what they wanted to keep, what they wanted to store. You, you guys get it. If you've been through it, you understand it. My mom was put on hospice, and I don't know how she did this, but she graduated hospice. Thank you, Jesus. She's still getting older every day, but she's better. But then unexpectedly, a couple Friday nights ago, my dad died, got up from his chair, went in the bedroom. Before he hit the floor, he was with Jesus. So now we're going back to South Bend for a completely different reason. And here's what, I, what we did. The four of us boys went into their house, and we separated my father's lifetime possessions into three piles, things that meant a lot to him and us, things that only meant something to him, and things that would mean nothing to anybody who ever lived. <laughs> Two massive dumpsters. My father threw nothing away. He had 13 
coolers. He never went on vacation. <laughs> Why in the world would you have? He probably found him on the side of the road and thought, I might need that someday. He never needed it. He had pieces of wood, the most misshapen, knotted up pieces of board because I knew my father. Dale thought, oh, one day I'll need that. He didn't. And so two massive dumpsters were filled with the possessions of my father. Here's what I learned. Whether it was important to us and him, only to him or to nobody, he took none of it with him. None of it. He left it to us to either choose to take to keep or to find someone who could use it or to put it in a dumpster. Now, I'm not mad at my dad. My dad was not a materialistic person. He was cheap. That's why he kept everything. But at the end of the day, he didn't take anything that gave him comfort in this life with him. But he went into the ultimate comfort of his life, Jesus. And I learned something. And I'm going to keep that lesson in my heart. I'm throwing everything away. I'm not leaving it to my boys. I, I used to say if I hadn't used it in three years, I'm going to get rid of it. Now, 30 seconds. It's about my limit. <laughs> Garbage. Okay. Here's what I don't want you to hear me saying today in the reality that death is coming and what we choose to do and our choices today will define who we are on the other side. Jesus is not saying that if you had a rough life here, you get to go to heaven. Nor is he saying if you have a good, comfortable life here, you're going to go to hell. He's not talking about that. Remember, it's what they place their hope in. Identity of your choices is important. Secondly, our identities go with us into eternity. They are known or unknown on the other side of death. Verse 23 and in Hades, being in torment, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. Notice something here. The rich man still thinks he has authority and power. He's commanding the poor man who was there to serve him in his lifetime. He's expecting his authority and power to have come with him. And he says, have him come serve me. And Abraham's like, nah, those days are over. Choices you made in your life, you don't get to do that here. You don't get to command. And then he says, I'm in anguish, or he's in anguish. And I wonder when I read the parable if this is the first time he's ever experienced that because Lazarus experienced it most every day. And yet Lazarus put his hope in God and this man put his hope in himself. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. There is a misunderstanding. I hear it in conversations almost every week. The number of people who think, you know what, well, I'm saved. I, I often wonder what they mean. I've been saved, and so I'm just going to live this life. God's going to forgive me of my sins. I get to go to heaven, and when I get to heaven, I'm going to figure out all of this worshiping and loving God and caring for one another. I need to tell you that that is a lie of the enemy. The choices we make each and every day. Eternity is not a then thing in Jesus. Eternity began the moment you were cleansed by the blood of Christ. If you believe his words are true, to comfort my mom, I said to my mom, this Saturday, my dad died Friday night. I flew in Saturday. I was at her place about noon. I walked in the house. I said, Mom, every promise dad ever believed came true Friday night. I'm basing my life on that. How about you? 
My dad was not a perfect man. My dad wouldn't even qualify as a saint. But I knew my dad trusted Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, eternity is not a one-day thing you might flip and become different in. Eternity began the moment you followed Jesus Christ. We need to live in eternity with a mind on eternity. Not a day one day, but today. The, the kingdom is breaking through in our world. And Jesus' promises are true. You see, whatever choices we make with a mind on eternity will either rescue us or fail us. Notice what he implies in verse 27. And he said, And I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. I don't like this parable. I know it doesn't matter to you that I don't like it, but I need to explain this. This parable makes me more than uncomfortable. I would have written the ending a little bit different. You see, he realizes that what he ignored in this lifetime costs him. I love the fact that the rich man's realization is not that something unjust has happened to him. He actually realizes, I blew my lifetime worrying about today. I was so worried about the waves of every day that I couldn't see the shore I should be heading toward. And so in the midst of it, he says, I wish someone needs to go back and tell my brothers. You have to remember the audience every time Jesus tells a parable. It's so important that you don't just read the parable. Find out what raised the parable. Why did Jesus teach it? Who was in the audience? I hope you still have your Bibles open. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They were self-justifiers. They thought that being Jewish, living a good life, and being comparably better than others was their justification. This is what God would see, and God would say, well, of course, you're mine. Think about that. Being Jewish, living properly, and being comparably better than others. Now, Americans, can we be honest about our culture? We think that being American living a good quality moral life and being better than most other nations because we had a Christian foundation that God's going to look at us and go, well, of course I love America more than everybody else. It's a lie. It's not about who we are. They were self-justifiers. And we, if we're not careful with an eye away from eternity, will find ourselves being self-justified for our nationality. And we should be careful. You see, it's not that where we're going to end up in eternity. It's whether or not we're living out our eternity right now because our identities are not going to change. We will be worshipers or not. When I think about the story we're telling, I told you at the very beginning to capture your attention that we have these uh, entitled hearts that nobody can tell me I can't have what my heart desires. I'm telling you that you're allowed to have an entitled heart. But it's not entitled of the things that feed you. It's you and I have the entitlement of being able to represent the glory of God in a dark world, to bring the real answer to people. We have a chance. I see Caroline going into strip clubs to meet with girls who see no way out of the life that they have to perform. See, they have kids to feed. 
They have to stay away from the abuse of someone who's dominating them and has captured them for their own purposes. They go into this environment where they're treated like a product, and we sometimes can look at that. In our very simple world, we can stop and think, well, they just made poor choices. Church, sometimes poor choices are the only choices people have. It's a broken world. So grateful for a group of people we can partner with that will go into the strip clubs. Carolyn said sex missionaries. Did you hear that? I was teasing Thursday night. I said, if we made a T-shirt like that, we could buy a new building. That'd be pretty amazing. <laughs> well, you laughed. They booed. I mean, I was judged hard Thursday night. <laughs> Man, praise God for sex missionaries. Amen? Seriously. Because those young ladies, no matter why they're doing what they're doing, they need to know what I needed to know. I am broken. I am sinful. I don't deserve anything in life. My entitlement is a joke, yet... Jesus said, no, no, I'm going to entitle your heart to love me. I'm going to bring you into my kingdom. What was the number one criticism? If you count verses, the number one criticism of Jesus, who he hung out with, he would have been in strip clubs, but not for the reason most men go. He would have gone to bring the glory of God. Church, our identities begin today. Our eternity begins right now. You see, our identities are based on how we choose to live. Our, our identities go with us into eternity. And the last thing I want to say today is this. Our identities are to be marked by a generosity of faith and mercy. We begin to live today as people having received and offering mercy, of living by the faith we have. If you're a self-justifying person, your standard of how you're better than everybody else may actually be true but it will be ineffective. It won't take care of your sin. If you're a person justified by the grace of Jesus Christ, then you now know how to live. You now know how to, to grow. You know how the effective will of God is. I love what Dallas Willard says, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but Dallas Willard says the effective will of God is where God gets what God wants for the sake of forming you and I into the likeness of Jesus. You see, God is going to let us die, and God is going to let us suffer, and God is going to let us question, and God is not going to make everything comfortable and perfect. God is going to strip us away from things we think we need to survive to show us that we only need God to survive. God is going to do all of that. Why? Because he's forming us into the likeness of Jesus. Think about it with me. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he cry out? He didn't cry out, my God, my God, how humiliating. He didn't cry out, my God, my God, how hard. He didn't even cry out, which he could have, my God, my God, how much this hurts. What he cried out was, my God, my God, where are you? Separation from his father was the most pain he experienced in his suffering. And man, he suffered. You know what you and I are entitled to? Look at verse 29. Abraham says, when his request was, can I go tell my brothers? He says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, no, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is why I don't like this parable. Let me go tell my brothers. Let me go tell my friends. He said, no, you had your chance, and you ignored it. 
And he said, yeah, but if you just went back, if I went back and told them, they would see that I was raised from the dead and they would understand this. He said, no, they're not going to believe even in the resurrection. That's why I don't like this parable, because it's not true, right? Yeah, it is. Here's why. Because his audience wouldn't believe in the resurrection because they didn't think they needed to be resurrected. When you're self-justifying, you don't need what Jesus does. You can admire it. You can sing songs about it. But it doesn't change who you are. Jesus was right, as he always is. See, Timothy Keller brings this up in his treatment of Luke 16. Dr. Keller has an insight that I love. He said, no, there's a chasm between us, verse 26. When, upon death, we will either be in the presence of Jesus or we will for eternally be without the presence of Jesus. And that in and of itself is hell. So how do we cross the chasm? We don't, but Jesus is the one who delivers every one of us from the side we should be on to the side we should never be on. Are you with me? It's by the blood and the work and the life of Jesus. Lazarus' name meant God is my help. And Jesus is ours. And that's why this is a gospel story. That the resurrection either matters or it doesn't. Ask yourself if it does. We are to be entitled people, but in the right way. We are entitled to go into all the world and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Not an escape from hell gospel, but a life with God, an eternity that begins today. Let freedom break out in this place. Let's live with mindset on eternity, not a one-day eternity, but a right-now eternity. Are you with me, church? Because who we are becoming is what we will be. Don't delay. I'm really uncomfortable with this, but I'll do it quickly. One of the things I'm very grateful for in this pretty hard seven months in my life, and many of you have gone through it too, so you understand it far better than I do. But one of the things that I've actually written down in my journal the past few days is my father got up from his chair, walked into the bedroom, and he dropped. And the EMT said he was gone before he hit the floor, and I'm grateful for this. But I'm also startled. My dad at 87 still thought he had a long time. In fact, he was planning to stay and take care of my mom until she was gone. He didn't know the day he would pass. None of us did. And then he just was gone. And I realized none of us know. Now, I'm not one of those preachers that's going to emotionalize this. In fact, I may not talk about my dad's death for a long, long time. But I want to say this in light of Jesus' point of emphasis. None of us know how long we have on this earth. We just know we don't have forever. Let's start living eternity now. Let's look at our lives of those things that are valuable and those things that could be valuable to me, but the things that will never be valuable. Let's not spend any more time on this. Amen? Let's start living our lives with a purpose. Now, whether you're a believer or not, I'm inviting you to become a believer today. Let there be no question here. The gospel call to every single person in this room is, what is your eternity going to be based on? Your status, your, your ethnicity, your uh, Americanism, your prosper, you're, you're better than other people? No, no, none of us. We all have to humble ourselves before God. I don't deserve to spend eternity with my, my God, but he invited me, and I'm no sucker. I'm taking it. Whatever it costs, I don't get to tell God no. I get to say yes, sir. And by pursuing his glory and his effective will, I'll receive what I don't deserve. And the beautiful part of my life is I am now entitled by my God to invite each one of you to join us 
to choose eternity. You may have questions. We want to answer your questions. To the best of our ability, we want to show you what the Word of God is. We want to introduce you to Jesus. We want to help you. But God is entitling you to suffer and to struggle and to live in faith no matter your circumstances. This is what we're entitled to, that the glory of God may be seen, and in the glory of God, we're made complete. So at the back room are tables with lamps lit. People are headed there right now. If you want someone to pray with you, you want to begin a conversation of discipleship, you want to know what the heck the bald guy's talking about. That's why we exist. Sunday mornings are fun. Walking with people Monday through Saturday is where life and discipleship really happens. We're inviting you to become a follower of Jesus all the way home. So when that day comes that we cross from this life to the other, Jesus will take us across the chasm to his home where he has prepared a mansion for us, a new heaven, a new earth, forever worshiping the God we begin to worship today. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.